Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks. Hey, church. I'm Tyler. He, him. So for this worship series, it would have been enough. We're borrowing a pattern of storytelling that is closely related to the Exodus story. It's called Dayenu, which is a Hebrew phrase that means it would have been sufficient, implying that something more, something extra, follows that phrase. Dayenu is also a cheerful song sung by uh, Jewish families at their Passover meals. It tells the story of God's liberation of our ancestors as a series of escalating gifts from God. And so here, we're learning to tell our own stories in this Dayenu pattern so that we too can experience the escalating gratitude that it provokes. So today, I'm up. If God had just gotten me the hell out of that school that actually introduced me to the Christian faith, that would have been enough. Dayenu. But God made sure that there was someone in that place who actually cared for those on the social and spiritual margins of that place. And if God had landed me at a school that not only allowed, but actually encouraged intellectual and spiritual rigor, that would have been enough. Dayenu. But God made a way where my first minister stayed close, studied and worked nearby, and also gave him the insight to invite me to the campus Catholic community. And if I had never visited that inclusive, intergenerational, and embracing community, it would have been enough. Dayenu. But God just kept tugging at me, eventually pulling me in to see that Christian community could actually be loving, life-giving, and I realized how much I needed it. And if God had helped me to realize that Christian communities could be inclusive and loving, that would have been enough. I knew. But God, God had another friend invite me to some church that worshipped at the back of a barbecue restaurant at night. <laughs> and if God had gotten me to just occasionally come to this church, it would have been enough, Dayenu. But here I have found a home. I found my wonderful spouse and a community that affirmed my call and believed in me at a time when I did not, Dayenu. We're reading along in Exodus and Uh, Last week, you all celebrated in song that the Israelites stopped to sing on the opposite shore of the Red Sea, having escaped their captors, and 
after they finish the running and then the singing, the next thing that happens, obviously, is that they're hungry. Escaping is a, it takes a lot of energy. Now they're hungry. So from Exodus chapter 16, as we continue in our story. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instructions or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because God has heard your complaining against the Lord. (laughs) For what are we? that you complain against us. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against God, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, draw near to the Lord, for God has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, They looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. And then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine, flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as any of you needs. An omer to a person, according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over. And those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as each of them needed. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was pissed. Morning by morning, they gathered it as much as any needed. But when the sun grew hot, 
it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, two omers apiece. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not become foul, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, and they found none. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, God gives you food for two days. Each of you stay where you are. Do not leave your place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel called the stuff manna. It was like coriander seed. That's the seed for cilantro. White, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations in order that they may see the food with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the covenant for safekeeping. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a habitable land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. P.S. An omer is a tenth of an ephah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I never thought I would say this, but here it is. I got so sick of tacos. Ground beef tacos spiced with cumin and garlic salt, simmered in tomato sauce, sweetened with a dash of brown sugar, just the way my mother makes them. Crispy pork tacos with red onions and fresh jalapenos diced into a bright salsa. Slow-cooked chicken tinga tacos with mashed avocado, sprigs of cilantro, and a splash of lime. Sick of all of it. It was fucking COVID, see? And the truth is, I got sick of every single thing I know how to make in my own kitchen. And every single thing Lance knows how to make. We were locked down pretty hard, especially because his parents live with us, and we were going to the grocery store only every three weeks and then eating our way through two carts worth of groceries in a careful order so that the perishable stuff wouldn't perish before we could turn it into something edible. Tacos. Lots of tacos. Sick of them. When I was a kid, it worried me for the Israelites that all manna, all the time menu, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 40 years running, no matter how delicious it was, wouldn't they get bored? 
Wouldn't they get sick of it the way I felt sure I would do? But conscientious Sunday school teachers helped me understand that all over the world, people eat more or less the same things from meal to meal, day to day. Rice and beans, beans and cornbread, fish and rice, plantains and fish, etc., etc. rinse, repeat. So manna in the morning and quail in the evening, the hungry Israelites, a couple months into their escape, having run out of whatever provisions they stuffed down into their duffel bags on the way out of Egypt town, were glad to get it. Not like me, with my first world palate and my first world problems. Not sick of it. Not after four months. Not after four years. Not after four decades. Just grateful. And learning, always, every day, that the basic stuff for the sustenance of their lives had come, would always come from hands other than their own. With the crossing of the Red Sea out into that vast wilderness, into the period of their homeless wandering for a generation's worth of time gone by, our ancestors in faith were enrolled in a kind of school. They had a lot to learn about life with God, and the curriculum in God's school starts with economics. And the first lesson in economics is manna. They already knew how to live in Pharaoh's economy, how to do what they were told every day, no more, no less, in exchange for the bottomless bowls dipped from always steaming flesh pots. I just want to pause to say that surely our translators could find a better way to say that. For flesh pots, try this imagining. An aromatic stew of slow-cooked meat with disintegrating vegetables in a rich, spicy broth. Endless baskets of flatbread for dipping and scooping the stew from a common bowl. Babies would suck the broth from the softening bread and graduate to peas and potatoes and carrots from the same soup as soon as their fat fingers could pinch it up into their mouths. Hmm. But now I'm doing what the hungry Israelites did when they had eaten the last of their goat jerky, romanticizing those Egyptian flesh pots. Hunger is a powerful shaper of our imaginations. How quickly they forgot that they were only fed so that they could work, laboring endlessly for Pharaoh's projects. Their bodies were the machines that Pharaoh's economy required. The flesh pots were not a gift, but fuel for their continued production. And so on the other side of the Red Sea, God began to teach God's now free people what life with God is like. It was a one-room schoolhouse with the toddlers learning alongside the teenagers and the grown-ups and the old folks, though in truth, the only ones who would graduate from this program were the very youngest ones. Over 40 years, the ones whose bellies and bodies remembered Egyptian stew and Egyptian slavery would perish, not from hunger, but from their time simply running out. So the Lord's curriculum was designed with the littlest ones in mind. They would grow up 
like our own kids are growing up with access to a global network of knowledge and commerce and relationship in their back pockets, they would never know a world in any other economy. Over 40 years in the wilderness, God was shaping their sense of what is normal and good and right, shaping their expectations for how the world is supposed to work when God is in charge. The little ones, see, would never know any different. And here was the way it was supposed to work, God said. First off, everybody would eat, and everybody would eat enough not too little, not too much. Now, while the text of Exodus 16 helpfully reminds us that an omer is a tenth of an ephah, a fact I memorized for Bible Bowl a million years ago and never forgot, though I cannot to this day convert it to any measure recognizable to you or me, it actually seems like, in the magical realism of the story, that an omer is an expandable and contractible measure such that the same measure can be a full meal for persons large or small, active or sedentary, growing in adolescence or contracting in old age, incubating or lactating or all done with childbearing. Everybody gets an omer, a tenth of an ephah, and it is the right amount for every eater every day. The text even says that some gathered more and some less, but when they measured it, voila, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. And miraculously, delightfully, they gathered as much as each of them needed. Now, if we go too quickly by that, that an omer of manna is enough, for every eater, we will miss the radical assertion of God's economics curriculum, and we will miss it because we have been schooled in an altogether different curriculum, an altogether different economy, where enough is a fool's measurement, where the whole system is dependent on our never imagining that we have enough. It's capitalism's best trick, see? to make us feel always the necessity of more, to make us fear that even if today's needs have been met, there could be scarcity tomorrow, to make us believe that what we have now cannot possibly be enough because security comes with having more than just enough. So we have been taught. For capitalism to work, there must always be more to want, more to crave, more to covet, more to work for. Capitalism is an enslaving pharaoh that feeds us for its own sake. And so in pharaoh's economy, it makes sense to seek a little extra and then a little more, hoarding the leftovers even after your belly is satisfied as a hedge against tomorrow's hunger. You know that's how the whole thing got started, right? I mean, way back when, 400 years or so, according to the story of Exodus, another pharaoh got wind of a coming famine and started hoarding grain in anticipation of hunger. Hungry 
Oops. Hungry people, including the ancestors of Israel, eventually had to come to Egypt to buy what Pharaoh had stored because he had accumulated far more than he and his people could consume. That's the nature of hoarding. Hoarding tends toward empire, toward imperial control of more and more and more resources until the people around you are dependent on your stores and will pay any price to have it. The Israelites, at the end of Genesis, sold first their livestock and then their land and finally themselves and their own children into enslavement because their hunger was so desperate. What if old granddaddy Pharaoh had never hoarded all that grain in the first place? What if for all the years of his paranoid stockpiling, he had been content to let the grain follow hunger? so that everyone had daily bread in their own homes. What if, I'm asking, the famine itself was induced by Pharaoh's building and filling of bigger barns, his control of the grain market, his scared and selfish stashing of what everybody needs to stay alive. That is lesson number two in God's economics curriculum. You can try to gain some control over tomorrow's anticipated hunger and thereby gain an advantage over your neighbors by gathering extra and holding it tightly in your closed, frightened fist. But the magic of manna is in its planned obsolescence. Hold on to it overnight, and you'll wake up with worms in the morning. Meaning that in addition to the enoughness of the omer, there is a dailyness built into God's economy. Now, we talk a lot around Galileo Church about the whole broad scope of human history, about the long arc of the moral universe bending degree by degree toward eventual ultimate justice because, to be honest, this is how we keep our sanity and our hope alive when the circumstances seriously suck. But when God schooled our ancestors in the appropriate economic measure of time, God said daily, as in, give us this day our daily bread. Perhaps the most radical request in the prayer we share every week, the one most counter to the capitalistic economy we're swimming in, The limited horizon of daily need frees us from the anxiety of trying to game out the rest of our lives, of worrying about a future we can neither predict nor control. It's an anxiety the Israelites knew well. They accused Moses and Aaron of bringing them out into the wilderness to let them die slowly of starvation, shouting in their hangry panic that things were better when they were enslaved because at least there they knew they'd be fed. God responds with a promise for tomorrow morning, manna at dawn, and tomorrow evening, quail at dusk. And the same promise for the day after that, and the day after that, if only they can believe it and let go of their impulse to grab and clutch at the certainty Pharaoh gave them in exchange for their lives. As for the maggots that breed in the manna you hoard, apparently 
even they get a Sabbath break. The students in God's wilderness school discover this entirely by accident, having learned already that the magical scales will weigh out an omer per person, no matter how much or how little you've gathered, how hungry you are or not, and having learned the disgusting result of trying to hold any back for tomorrow morning's breakfast, on the sixth day of their instruction, something weird happens. Through no fault of their own, Moses' deputies report to him after the sixth day's weigh-in. Everybody seems to have gathered two omers apiece. They didn't mean to. They really didn't. Somehow it just kind of happened that way. And to everyone, all at once, that's weird, right? And we're really hopeful that you and God won't be too upset. What do you advise, Moses? What are we going to do with all these leftovers? And here is lesson three in God's economics curriculum. After enoughness, after dailiness, there is stillness. That's how God describes the concept of Sabbath to people who have never known a nap in Exodus 16, 29. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, God gives you food for two days. Each of you Stay where you are. Do not leave your place on the seventh day. It's as simple as that. Just be still. Stay home. Stay in bed or on the sofa or on the patio. Don't run errands. Don't work the fields or the livestock or the email. Don't participate in Pharaoh's economy. Don't sell anything or buy anything or process anything. Don't sell anything bought or processed or buy anything sold or processed or process anything sold or bought or processed or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. It is the Lloyd Dobler School of Economics from the movie Say Anything. If you're Gen X, you know. To the rest of you, I'm sorry. Stop imagining, God says, that you are the engine of the universe or even of your own household or even of your very own life. You are not a machine. When it comes to the enoughness of God's economy, stop imagining that you are not enough. When it comes to the dailiness of God's economy, Stop subjecting yourself to the daily grind of exhaustion in service of more. When it comes to the stillness of God's economy, still your body, quiet your mind, let your spirit rest. Contemplate that all you have needed, God's hand hath provided. Be still and know. Church, I am so hungry. Not for tacos, not for savory stew, not for honey cilantro cakes that appear with the dew. Okay, well, actually, I am kind of hungry for any of those things right this minute. I mean, who decided that we should have church at dinner time anyway? But what I'm hungry for, what my spirit growls for, is more of God's economy, not 
way back then, and not someday at the end of the moral universe rainbow, but here and now with you. We have lost the learning of those Israelite toddlers growing up in the normalization of enoughness, dailiness, stillness. We have all but forgotten the lessons of the wilderness wandering school of economics. It's one of the church's most important tasks now, the resetting of our economic selves week to week, Sunday to Sunday, the sharing with each other and with our neighbors such that everyone has an omer every day, such that everyone can rest sometimes. It means that the church now teaches and learns and practices God's economy. Through our Helping Hands Fund, through the North Texas Transportation Network, by not spending more than we should to make this space gorgeous and safe and sacred, by normalizing rest in the very place that our hearts are drawn near to each other and to God. Raise your hand if you've ever taken a nap in the big red barn. I hope there are a lot of you. There are, yes. Welcome to God's economy, church, where the lessons of enoughness, dailiness, and stillness are still the curriculum that we are learning together. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace. Peace.